Well, I appreciate you uh, patiently enduring all that reading scripture. Sometimes, uh, really, oftentimes we just read all the scriptures involved in something. There's not a whole lot left to say. It's sort of Hebrews nine interprets Leviticus sixteen probably much better than I'm about to try to do. But I am excited today to begin a series of lessons. I'm not sure how many it'll be, how long it'll be, but a series of lessons on the subject of the atonement, specifically the atonement of Christ, though our lesson begins today in the Old Testament book of Leviticus in chapter 16, <clears throat> I really want to look extensively into the New Testament concept and teaching of the subject because it's there that we find this shadow being brought to light. And we understand this doctrine as it's made very clear in the New Testament in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we first encounter this term atonement in the Old Testament, of course. Specifically in the book of Exodus is the very first time we encounter it. When the law was given as it relates to the priests and the sacrifices that they were to make for the sins of the people. In Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the places that those are the places you'll find it most often, actually, in the King James Bible. It is used also in Samuel, in Chronicles, and Nehemiah. The interesting thing is the word itself is only used in the New Testament once in the King James Bible. And that's in Romans chapter 5, verse 11. In other words, it's only translated atonement one time in the New Testament in Romans 5, 11. And if you're reading newer translations, then it was not used in the New Testament at all. But it's used a lot more often in the Old Testament in the newer translation. So just that, if you are if you go home and try to look into atonement, if you look, say, in the ESV or the NASB, you're going to find a ton of times the word atonement is used in the Old Testament, but then none in the New Testament. And we'll see, uh, though, in a few minutes when I discuss the definition, the same Greek word that's translated atonement is used in the New Testament more than once. It's just translated something differently. Usually, it's translated as reconciliation. Now, this word, um, I, I'm sure we all hear the word and use it all the time at church. And this is the reason I want to kind of take a little time to explain the doctrine of atonement because it's very, very important. So, you may have heard it a lot and don't really understand what all does it encompass? What does it mean? And what does the word, where does it come from? It's interesting because the word atonement itself is believed to have been coined by William Tyndall. And possibly one of the only words in the English Bible that actually has its roots in the English language. In other words, it didn't come from Latin or Greek. So we have Tyndall probably to thank for this word. In the early 1500s, his translation of the Bible, he took a word that basically means at one, signifying the reconciling of God to man, two things that were at odds, and he brought them together to make them one word, and signifying the bringing together of God and man in relationship. And so this word at one, admit to it, and it's at one meant or atonement. That's where the word comes from. Now, in the Old Testament, if you're interested in these kind of things, the Hebrew word kafar is what is translated atonement. And it means this, to cover, literally, or to pardon, 
or to reconcile. And it can also mean, which we'll talk about in a later lesson, to propitiate. The New Testament word, which we would we would pronounce catalogue, means sort of the same thing. It means to exchange, or it means restoration. And I like this. It means an adjustment of a difference. And there's a lot of difference between us and God. Our sin has separated us. And so God made an adjustment necessary for us to be saved. And I think this is what I love about the doctrine of atonement more than anything. And you'll see this especially as we get to talking specifically about um, definite atonement or particular atonement or sacrificial um Penal substitutionary atonement. All these words, you might not know what they mean right now, but I'm going to try to explain them to you before we get through this. I love this doctrine because it highlights this one fact that um, salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, if you study this doctrine, I promise you there'll be no other way for you to to finish um, understanding salvation other than it comes from the Lord. It is of the Lord. It's funny for me when I was coming to the doctrines of grace this was the last one that I was able to grasp but when I grasped it there was no way I could turn back after I found this one right and so when I, I understood depravity uh, I understood election a little bit I understood perseverance because I'm a Baptist and we've taught that I've been taught that all my life but the one I couldn't get was this and I think it's because the phrase limited atonement. But once I, under, once I understood atonement and what happened in the atonement and what Christ did and who was really satisfied at the atonement, then I could no longer understand salvation as anything other than of the Lord. And so I hope and, and pray that you will be able to, to do the same thing when we're finished here if you don't already. So what the word means, obviously, especially as we see in the New Testament, is that God was reconciling the world to himself. Especially we see this in the book of Hebrews, how that God did this in Christ. Jesus is the reconciliation. And so when we use the word atonement, we really are trying to sum up the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that has reconciled sinful people to their God. Now that might be a big definition. But that's pretty much what atonement means. Even though it's pictured for us in symbols and types and shadows in the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about that mostly today, but it's definitely brought to light for us in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our substitute, has covered, pardoned, restored, exchanged, adjusted the difference, all the ways that you can define this theological idea of atonement. They are all realizing Christ as he takes on flesh, fully obeys the law, as our catechism pointed out to us today. He died in the place of sinners. He's buried, and then he rises again. That's atonement. The hymn writer proclaims it well for us in a song that we often sing here. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saying. That's the atonement. That's what we're talking about. And it's so beautifully pictured for us and foreshadowed for us in our text today. The day of atonement for Israel. They have been given the law by God. Specific commands. 
But of course, men and women are sinful. And they're lawbreakers. And so God designs a way that sin can be passed over for a little while and not punished until Christ comes. We read about that in Romans 3.25. In God's divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. That's what's going on here in Leviticus 16. God providing a way to pass over sins until the time came, the time of Christ. Now, why did God do this? You ever ask this question? Why not just send Jesus in the garden and take care of it? Be done with it. Why this forbearance? Why this waiting? Why not just give Jesus right after Adam, fix it? Why the shadows and the types, right? Well, I'm not going to answer that for you because I have no idea why. All right. God didn't tell us why he did it this way. We just know in the fullness of time, Christ came. Until the fullness of time, Christ forbeared, for he was in forbearance of sin, passing over it. And that's all we know. Here's a good passage for you if you're wondering that, because we wondered this, if you're like me, in a lot of areas. Why didn't God just do this? Why not this? Why not this? Deuteronomy 29 and 29 set me free from a lot of this stuff. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now point that out because here's where you need to spend your time worrying about the things God has revealed. Okay? Let God worry about the things he has not revealed. He can handle that. Why he didn't reveal it, I don't know. Ken Ken was in my office one day years ago. He pointed this passage out to me. And it really just changed the way I was able to think in terms of who God is and what he does. I used to think I've got to answer all these questions about why, why, why. And then I find out God revealed what he wanted me to know. and What he doesn't want me to know are the secret things and they belong to him. So I don't know why this is here. I don't know why the long passing over sin, all these shadows. I do know ultimately to get us to Christ. But why God chose to do it this way, I don't know. But I do believe this. They are for our edification or building up the church. They are for our education. And we should look at them and learn and bask in it and love it and rejoice as we see the shadow become reality. Right? Now, I remind you the context here in Leviticus 16. We actually talked about this horrific and sobering event several weeks back. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they had offered a strange fire to the Lord, and the Lord killed them as a result. And it was a terrible fate which they met. But it was also a great time for God to give instructions about how priests were to approach God and worship. And also, what a wonderful time to highlight the fact that even the priests had to be cleansed and forgiven and purified. And not only that, but did you notice even the sanctuary and all the stuff in the sanctuary had to be purified. Why? Because sin is just that destructive. Even the tent of meeting had to be cleansed because it was filthy. Sin defiles everything. In fact, I want you to think just a minute about this scene, this tent of meeting. The stench of the animal carcass, the blood, the fire burning, the animal flesh. That was part of the need to burn the incense. This place would reek of death. It was everywhere. 
I think too often we look back at the Old Testament and the, the tabernacle and think about, man, how beautiful this place must have been. And sure, certainly it would have been. But do we ever think about how impossible it would have been to ignore the death, and the stench, and the blood, and the continuous smoke, and the incense? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a priest? The constant washing of your hands to get the blood off? Have you ever been a part of field dressing or cleaning some kind of animal? Or butchering a cow? The blood just stays down. You can wash and wash. Two days later, you, oh man, there's some more blood I didn't get out. I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like for these priests. They washed before, they washed after. The day in and day out of slitting throats, sprinkling blood, blood, blood. It just had to be a horrific scene, though it was a glorious thing. But there had to be this, no matter how much you tried to focus just straight ahead, there was all this going on around you that wouldn't let you forget how sinful and wretched Sin is. It's awful. And also, if you were a thinker, even though you, you would assume this is a happy time, we're coming to the priest to get our sins at least passed over for now. If you were a thinker, even while standing in the line, holding your sacrifice or leading your sacrifice to the priest for the slaughter for your sins, you were thinking how simple you were thinking standing in line about not being simple, about the sin you committed or the sin you were going to commit and knowing that on your way out from sacrificing your animal, you are going to probably sin before you even got out of the tent of meeting again. Man, somebody bumps into you on the way out of the tabernacle, right? Tabernacle rage. You're angry when you leave and you're happy going in and here, here you are wanting to fight. It would have had to have been a, a, just a sobering scene of sin everywhere. Just constantly this idea that the bleeding of the goats and the rams and the mooing or the whatever you call it that bulls do. They all the while not knowing what was about to happen, obviously. And don't get me wrong. I don't think we should live in fear and defeat and under the weight of sin. Because here's the good news. We don't live under the shadow. We live in Christ. And that's been taken. He has taken our yoke. But the shadows are for our edification. And Christ has set us free. And we don't drag our poor animals into the tent to be slaughtered. Because the Lamb of God has been offered and sacrificed. Because sin is an awful thing. It is bloody. It stinks. It can't be taken lightly. So we shouldn't be comfortable with it. So there's a sense in which we don't need to be dismissive. We ought to be living as we are called, which is free from our sin and trespasses. And Christ has taken our sin, but we shouldn't take that lightly. The Day of Atonement was necessary because even though the people had daily and weekly brought their sacrifices for sin and the priests had performed their duties, Sin is so entrenched into mankind, there still needed to be a day in which God accepted a sacrifice for all sins, unrealized or forgotten. A sacrifice to cover all the other sacrifices that fell short. A day in which God would declare his people forgiven. And certainly this was a day of comfort and peace and rejoicing for the people. 
But this day also did something toward God. It made possible somehow that divine forbearance would happen. That passing over sin would happen until that day would come. Church, we don't need to miss this. This day was but a shadow of that day that was coming. When God would no longer pass over sin, but he would truly forgive us. A day in which priests would no longer serve in the tent because there would no longer be a need for sacrifice. A day in which reconciliation would be complete and fixed and would no longer be severed. And we live in that day. The glorious thing. But real quickly, let's just go over this day in Leviticus 16, this shadow, real quickly. And then see its fulfillment in the New Testament in just a few places. Now, look, I'm one of those people, I don't think that we should go through the Old Testament and, and look at every piece of equipment in the temple and find some mysterious, magical uh, thing it points to other than Christ. I just really believe we ought to be careful to see what the New Testament describes for us as having been fulfilled in Christ and point those out and move on. All right, so I'm not going to do 25 sermons on the, the, the incense or the censer because I don't know, I, I, don't, I think this whole scene is to point us to Christ. On all the other days, any priest could offer sacrifices on the altar. But on this day, the day of atonement, only the high priest, we read that, could come in. And then not only would he come in, but he had a way to come in, and we'll see that. But then he could only this one day go into the highest place, the holy, highest, holy of holies, and offer the sacrifice for sin for all the people for all the year. But even on this day, before the high priest could come, he had to thoroughly be prepared to go in because he too was but a sinner. So the high priest washed in the basin out in the courtyard. He dressed in the tabernacle and not his high priestly garb, but a humble clothing to symbolize that this high priest, though he's the high priest, he also is sinful. He would then offer a bull for a sin offering for himself and his family and then enter this holy place with the blood, the incense, the burning coals from the altar, the burnt offering, the sprinkle, sprinkling of the blood seven times on the mercy seat. Then back to the courtyard to cast lots for these two goats. One which would be offered for the sin offering of the people. The other which would be turned loose. The, new, the King James and the SV says for Azazel. And I don't remember, what did your translation say? To the, an undisclosed, uninhabitable. uninhabitable place. And there's a lot, there's a lot of, of the unknown in that phrase. A lot of, down through church history, a lot of interpretation of what it means and why a goat was used and what this meant to this uninhabitable place. The goat was to go away. I think the most important part is that there was a goat killed and there was one set free. And again, we have Tyndall, by the way, to thank for the term scapegoat. Scapegoat, he invented that term. Specifically for this goat that was to be turned loose. The high priest would return to the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat from the goat that was sacrificed, return to the altar, and cleanse it with the blood of the bull and the goat. Then the scapegoat was dispatched into the wilderness. The goat keeper himself had to come back and cleanse himself before he could come in again. The high priest would remove his clothing, rewash himself, put on regular clothing. 
offer two rams as a burnt sacrifice for himself and the people. The fat of the sin offering was burned. The bull and the goat, the sin offerings were carried outside the camp to be burned. And even the one who burnt those had to cleanse himself before he came back in. It's just this never-ending picture of sin and its defilement and cleansing. But there's a sinner that still is needing cleansing and this never-ending. And so you see when the Hebrew writer is pointing this out, if this would have cleansed and been sufficient, there would have been no more need for sacrifice. But chapter 9 of Hebrews that Jonathan read pointed out, but every year the high priest still had to do this again, offer the sacrifice for the sin of the people. There's so many intriguing aspects to this event. But I want you to notice these specifically and how they are fulfilled in Christ. One, the tabernacle, the meeting place, the place of worship. Well, that has been torn down. It has been brought down. There's no more need for it. Why? Because Christ is tabernacled among us now. He is our tabernacle. John 1.14 points this out. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means tabernacle. Christ is our tabernacle. The Holy of Holies, that place where God dwells, where God meets man, that place is now a person. We worship him in spirit and truth. The place is no longer important. Remember Jesus said that. Aaron had to guard very carefully how he went in this place that he might not die. We must rush into this place that we might live. It's different. Aaron went in afraid to death. I hope I don't mess this up. I'll die. We are commanded to approach the throne of grace boldly. Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And it's the only way that we might live in light of that. We no longer fear that we might die before we get out. But we might fear that we'll never live unless we're in. The mercy seat, the propitiation seat, obviously it's Christ. First John 4.10, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Obviously, the high priest, the need for one, a human one is gone because Christ is now our high priest. Hebrews 2 and 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's two of them wound up in one. Hebrews 4 and 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, that's what Aaron couldn't be. He couldn't be a high priest without sin. He had to cleanse himself before he went in and his whole family and all the equipment and all the pieces had to be cleansed. But we have one who's went in now for us without sin. And these offerings, the sin offering, the first goat, Aaron was to put his hands on the head of that goat in, in, in symbolic fashion, transfer, transfer the sins of the people on that goat who would be offered as a sin sacrifice. And of course, Christ fulfilled this completely. Hebrews 10, 14, by one offering, he's perfected forever those being sanctified. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. That transference of our sin to Christ as the sin offering goat. But Christ is also the scapegoat. Because pictured in the sin offering, obviously the death of Christ and the burial the scapegoat who lived and went away, the resurrection of Christ. 
And somebody said, well, the sin offering satisfied the wrath of God. The scapegoat satisfied the conscience of man. Because he could see, watch his sin fade off into that uninhabitable place. Brian read Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Don't you know that psalm later come to those who believed in Christ as the Messiah, a scapegoat, and they would see in that picture of their sin escaping, being removed Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? A scapegoat would have to be done, turn loose again next year, and next year, and next year. But how much more will the sacrifice of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's such a beautiful picture. And it points us to so many things. This idea of atonement. This work of Christ. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. All these things. Summed up in this word atonement. Picture for us in shadows in the Old Testament. But offered specifically for the people of Israel. And we'll get to this more as we start talking about definite atonement. And substitutionary atonement there was never a sacrifice offered for random people sacrifices offered for specific people he didn't put his hands on that goat and say may people all over the world somewhere we don't know about be sanctified and set apart and saved through the sacrifice of this goat now the people knew that sacrifice was for them it said clearly in Leviticus 16 sacrifice of the sins of Israel. So it is when Christ come along, his sacrifice, his atoning work was for specific people. The angel said the best, he will call him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sin. Man, that ought to set you free and make you excited that God loved you enough before you loved him to send Christ to die for your sin. It's a beautiful picture, is it not? And I think now we have a foundation to move forward to see why substitutionary atonement, particular redemptive atonement, is so important of a doctrine. And I want you to grasp it. I really do. Because I want you to see that this is what God has had in mind since the beginning. Why did he not come right in the garden, right after the garden, during Moses' day or during Noah's day, or I don't know any of the answers to that. What I do know is he pictured for us what was going to happen when he did come, and it has happened. And we look back and not just forward, but we look back and see all those shadows and all those pictures. It's just a glorious thing. That we could be like those who had to kill animals, bring our animals up day after day, and then once a year come to the Day of Atonement. We live that every day. We can rejoice because our sins have been paid. And we don't have to live under the burden and the weight of that. 
All you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest, Jesus said. That's where we live. It's a glorious thing. If you're not living there, hear, hear what the atonement says. This is the only way to escape. Full atonement, can it be? Yes, it is in Christ. Surrender to him. And let's rejoice in that. That's a great and awesome doctrine. Father, we love you. And we thank you for this glorious truth and the doctrine of the atonement. And we want to bask in it and rejoice in it. And we want to call people to understand it because we know that you, through the preaching of this gospel, not because it's a systematic doctrine, but because it is the picture given to us and the shadow and the type given to us to point us to Jesus Christ and his work. First of all, to satisfy the Father. And secondly, to redeem the people of God. And so we are thankful for this doctrine because of those reasons. God, just help us to, to glory in it, to grasp it, and to be thankful for it, we pray, as we come to the table. We have another picture sitting before us, a glorious picture of the body of, that was broken for us, that sacrifice that was made, and the blood that was shed, so that we can also remember the one that went away. Because Jesus not only died for us, but he rose again. So we rejoice in this supper because we do this supper in obedience to the commands of our Lord until he comes. Giving testimony to who he is until then in Jesus' name. Amen.